Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. This blonde is sitting watching the news with her husband when the newscaster announces six Brazilian men have died in a skydiving accident. Man, she just starts to cry, just to weep uncontrollably. That's horrible. Her husband tries to console her and says, yeah, baby, it is, but I mean, they were skydiving and, you know, that's a dangerous thing and accidents do happen. And for some reason, she just can't stop crying. After a few minutes, she says, well, how many is a Brazilian? (laughs) That's one of my favorites. How many is a Brazilian? You got it, didn't you? Matt, you got it. You and me. (laughs) And it just tells me we get upset about some of the craziest things, don't we? And here's the thing. Once we get upset about something, we go a little crazy. What they're discovering is, is that once you set your mind on something, that the mindset that you have begins to affect everything else that you're trying to do. Um, There was a researcher, I I came across this recently, Dan Kahan, a Yale Law professor, uh, led a study that found that our passions and biases undermine even basic reasoning. The study showed that people who are normally very adept at math are suddenly unable to solve a problem when the obvious answer conflicts with their political beliefs. And it's not as if the, quote, smart people were able to do better at solving problems. In fact, the researchers found that the better the people were at math, the more apt they were to try to avoid the actual answer. And this applied to both liberals and conservatives, by the way. Instead of changing their beliefs to match reality, we often just rearrange reality in our heads to match what we want. Did you hear that? Once you get a set of beliefs, reality can't change that. In fact, we will change reality to fit our beliefs. It's very difficult for us to admit that maybe there's a better way, maybe there's a better idea, maybe there's something else going on. And so what happens is sane reasoning people begin to do insane things. And this is not, this, the church is not immune to this. This happens all the time in churches. I was in a church before I came there, 10 years before I came, 10 years, there was a split and that church had divided. And it was a really ugly split. There, there was a division over the pastor and there were about half the, guy, half the church liked the pastor, about half the church thought it was time for him to leave. And so they had a big vote on a Sunday night and it was very close. It was like 51, 49, something like that. But anyway, they voted to remove the pastor and he shook his the dirt off his clothes, and he walked down the center aisle out the church, and about half the church followed him out. And they went out and tried to start a new church. It didn't really work out. Ten years later, we're still trying to process this. In a small town, I'm talking to people who were involved in that split, and it's still very tender, very bitter to them. And we could not get those people to come back around. A lot of people just stopped attending church. Some went to other churches, but it just became a mark in the whole community that we could never quite get over. And I was talking to one of the wise old guys in my church, and he said, you know what? If we'd have known then what we know now, we'd have handled things a lot differently. Fast forward, I pastored that church for seven years after I left. About a year and a half after I left, uh, they started having trouble with the new guy that followed me. And, And sadly, unfortunately, what happened as a result of that was there was another big split. This time about four or 500 people left and started a new church. I'm happy to say that new church actually took root and grew and the old church kind of stayed what it was and they, everybody seemed to have eventually found their place in that. But here's the interesting thing. 
One of, the, one of the chief guys involved in the turbulence and turmoil of that second split was the same guy that had told me, if we'd have known then what we know now, we'd have handled things differently. And yet in the second go-around, he didn't handle things differently. He handled them exactly as they had done the first time. And that doesn't mean he wasn't wise. It didn't mean he didn't love the Lord. It just means that we get lost in that moment and we get lost in our own ideas and our own belief. And all we can think about is winning. And I think it shows us how easy it is for conflict to get out of control. And it reminds us how hard we have to work at staying together. You know what the greatest danger to the church is? It's not some political party or position. It's not secular humanism. It's not radical atheism or hedonism or socialism or existentialism or any of those isms. Division is the greatest danger to a church. And examples are all around us. We'll see these churches and they'll get into a fight and they'll divide and then they'll divide again and then they'll divide again. And here's what churches do. They divide till they die. And they they just constantly are at it over some of the most ridiculous things. I remember reading this years ago in the late 1800s, there were just two deacons in a small Baptist church in Mayfield, Kentucky. These two deacons hated each other and always opposed one another. One Sunday, one of the deacons put up a small wooden peg on the back wall so the pastor could hang his hat. When the other deacon discovered the peg, he was furious because he wasn't consulted. The church took sides and eventually it split. And for years, the story goes, you could find the Mayfield, Kentucky, in Mayfield, Kentucky, the anti-peg Baptist church. (laughs) Now that story was told as true, but even if that story is not true, we would still believe it because it's believable because we've seen things like that happen. And churches and Christians begin to divide and divide and divide. We have to stay together. That's the essence of of Romans 15. So let's get our Bibles, turn on our devices. Let's go to Romans chapter 15. Paul is wrapping up this powerful letter to the Roman people. He had written this letter in 58 AD. So it's about 58, 59. So we're 25, 26 years after the resurrection of Jesus, after the cross and resurrection. So it's still fairly, fairly fresh and current in most people's minds. And Paul, he writes this letter from Corinth, which is a Greek city about 800 miles from Rome. And one of the main reasons he writes this letter is he's not sure he's ever going to get to Rome. And so in case he doesn't get to Rome, he wants to be sure that he lays out his theology. And most people would say that Romans is the most concise theology of the gospel of salvation by grace in the entire Bible. And many people would say, if you only had one book of the whole Bible, Romans is the book you need. Because from Romans, you can understand God's plan for your life and God's plan of salvation. And so Paul, uh, desiring to go there, not sure that he would, writes this book. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that Paul's plan was to, to uh, leave Corinth and go back to Jerusalem because he had, a, he had an offering he needed to take back to the church at Jerusalem. And his plan was to go to Jerusalem, deliver the offering, spend some time with the church there, and then he was going to go to Spain, and on his way to Spain, he was going to stop by Rome. So he planned to see these people. But when he got to Jerusalem, he got arrested because the Jews were furious with him. Uh, They wound up holding him captive in a place called Caesarea for a couple of years while he waits trial. When that finally doesn't happen, he appeals to Caesar. They load him on an Alexandrian grain ship, and he does finally arrive in Rome, but as a prisoner. 
And he spends two years in, in house arrest in Rome, and then eventually he's released, and most scholars think he did finally go to Spain. And then he came back to Rome about 64 A.D., and, and when he came back to Rome that second time, Nero had him killed. He was beheaded uh, beside the Ostian Way, and he was buried there in a borrowed tomb beside the Ostian Way outside the walls of Rome. In fact, there's a giant basilica now called the, the, the Basilica of St. Paul Beyond the Walls. Peter was also martyred that same time. Peter was crucified upside down. The reason they didn't crucify Paul and beheaded him instead was because he was a Roman citizen. And, and Peter's grave is marked by, by the magnificent St. Peter's Basilica because he was buried there on Vatican Hill, which was basically a cemetery uh, adjacent to Nero's circus. And so if you think about it, Paul and Peter wound up being buried less than four miles apart after they had traveled all that distance and done all that work for the kingdom of God. 64 AD, they died together uh, there in the city of Rome. But when Paul wrote Romans, he didn't know if he was ever going to get there. And so Romans 15 and 16 become really the last recorded words of Paul to the church in Rome. And for me, that adds weight, because if you're thinking about what are the last things I want to say, if this was the last sermon I ever delivered at, at North Monroe, what is it that I would want to say that would really drive that nail in, uh, that would encapsulate everything in terms of value and importance? And so 15 and 16 for me take on that added weight. And what's the one thing? And I, I can just hear Paul thinking, what's the one thing they can never forget? And the idea is the one thing you can never forget is you got to stay together. You have to stay together. You know, I thought about Romans 15 as I picked it up, and I really thought it was about limiting your liberty because Paul had really hit a big lick on that in Romans 14, and it seems that he's continuing that train of thought. So I, I assume that he was finishing that up in 15, but I think that misses the bigger point. The bigger issue was do whatever it takes to maintain your liberty. I mean, limiting your liberty is maintaining your unity. Uh, limiting your liberty is part of that. But the point was stay together because here's what I've realized. The only way the enemy can defeat the church is by tearing it apart from the inside. You know, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There's no political system that's going to take the church down. There's no ideology or philosophy that's going to tear the church down. The only way to tear the church down is from within. within. When church members get divided over quirky, foolish things, and those things become the main thing for them. And so the emphasis here is stay together. And verses 5 and 6 are really the summation of his focus. So let's start there. Romans 15 verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind. You got that? Underline that part. Same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. Verse 6, so that with one accord, you got that? Underline that. You may with one voice, there you go again, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? This is the whole point. Same mind means a common vision 
One accord means a common purpose, and one voice means a common confession. That's what he's calling us to. That's unity, and that's the central idea of this. Now, five and six uh, really summarize the central idea of the whole chapter 15 and 16, but they also serve as a hinge between these two great elements that have to be in play in order for us to maintain our unity, for us to stick together. There's two things that are absolutely essential, and here they are. You have to be unselfish, and you have to be inclusive. Now look, that's too much for this one setting. I can't, I can't walk through 15 and 16 with the time you give me. I mean, I can keep talking, but you'll stop listening. So what's the point in that, right? So let's break it in two and let's deal with one today. And if Jesus doesn't come back next week, uh, we'll deal with the second part. If he comes back next week, I'm hoping I won't see you guys. We're seeing heaven, right? But I'll be out of a job. They don't need any preachers in heaven. So if, we, if, if, if Christ hasn't come back, we'll, we'll deal with the second part next week. But the first part is about selfishness. Unity requires me to be unselfish. What's the old saying that we say all the time? It's not about you. You got that? It's not about you. So many churches think of, so many people within churches think that church is like a country club and membership has its privilege, so I need to be served. It's not about you. Now listen, when it comes to salvation, it's all about you. When it came to the cross, it was all about you. Jesus loved you so much that he went to the cross to die for you. For God so loved the world. Take out that word world and put your name in it. For God so loved Bill that he sent his only begotten son that if Bill believes in him, he'll never perish but have eternal life. That's how much God loved us. And, and let me say this. If you were the only person to ever live, Jesus Christ would have gone to the cross for you. So in that essence, it is all about you. But once I find faith in Christ and once I give my heart over to Jesus and to the Lordship of Christ, it's no longer about me. It's about my king, and it's about who I serve. So let's back up to Romans chapter 15, now looking at verse 1. Now we who are strong, that means mature, dunamis, powerful, spiritually powerful. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And here it is, underline this part, and not just please ourselves. Let me say this. Setting aside your personal preferences is a sign of maturity. Mature people set aside their preferences. I mean, look at parenting and how it works in parenting. You're, you're a young mom. You've got this little baby, and you thought it was going to be something that it's not. It's harder than you expected. And your preference, mom, is what? Sleep. That's all you want to do is sleep. But you've got this little dictator, and he's screaming at you in the middle of the night, feed me, change me, tend to me. And so as a mature person, what do you do? You set aside your preference, which is sleep, and you take care of that thing which is important, which are the needs of your baby, right? And, and, and that becomes true of mature people. Now, the opposite of that is also true. An immature baby never thinks about anyone but himself. I mean, that little dictator demands that his needs, needs be met, right? Um, can you imagine a baby waking up in the middle of the night and he's wet and hungry? And he thinks to himself, you know what? I'm wet and hungry, but my mom just needs to sleep. 
So instead of screaming at her tonight, I think I'm just going to let her rest. Would, she, would that little baby ever do that? You wish. <laughs> just once. They don't do that because immature things demand their way. And immature children, immature Christians demand their way. Mature Christians set aside their preferences. And I see two really important steps in these verses. Again, there are two parts to unity. We're talking about one today, unselfishness. We'll talk about inclusiveness the next time. But under the banner of unselfishness, there are two really powerful principles that are at work here in Romans 15, 1 and following. The first is you limit your freedom, limit your liberty. I mean, Romans 14 deals with this whole thing over meat, and it worked like this. In in the case of the Romans, you've got this division within the church that naturally creates a division within the body. You have Jewish Christians, and you have Gentile Christians. And that's that's enough to, to rip the thing apart. But the Jewish Christians have some very specific ideas about meat, and we talked about this a little bit last time. They couldn't just eat any meat. They couldn't eat shellfish. They couldn't eat bottom-dwelling fish like catfish. They couldn't eat uh, pork. They couldn't eat any kind of of, uh, grazing animal that didn't have a cloven hoof and chew the cud. And even then, it had to be very carefully prepared. And so there were all these kosher preparations to a kosher deli to make sure the meat is properly prepared. And in the Roman world, they really couldn't do that. And so the Jews would just, you know, choose not to eat meat oftentimes. So that now you're having a, a church, you know, potluck supper, and everybody kind of brings something from home, throw it together in the fellowship hall, and everybody's going to eat. And the Jews come along and go, oh, that's meat. I can't eat it. And, and mama's been working on that all day. She's, that's, her, that's her grandmother's casserole recipe, and it's got some hamburger or something in it. And now you're saying, it's not good enough for me. You see? And so the tension can start to rise anytime a group within the group begins to isolate itself based on practices. And so Paul basically is saying to them, hey guys, let's, let's, let's set this stuff aside for now. Not that important. You know, he did a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 8 where there was an opposite problem. It was the Gentiles that had problem with meat because they lived in this world that was chucked full of idols. And so every idol would be worshipped through sacrificial giving and people would give meat to the temple, to a cow or sheep or whatever, to be offered. And those priests would offer that meat and then they would sell what was left over uh, in the public market, only they would stamp it like instead of prime, this would be idol, you know? And it was the better meat because it had been magically induced with some sort of hocus pocus that came out of the temple. And so when people would invite Christians over to their home, you know, the Christian would come over to their home and they would bring out the meat and they would go, oh, this isn't just any meat. This is idle meat. Got some magic in it. And the Christians are like, do I eat that? Do I not eat that? You know, and, and Paul's like, don't ask, you know. And, and but Paul basically said, meat's meat. He said, idols don't even exist. It's just a clump of wood, so it doesn't matter what's given to that idol. 1 Corinthians 8, 8, he said, we're no worse off if we do, if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But he says something else that we need to hear. He says, I have to be careful because some think that if if they eat this meat, it's going to assume that they're somehow getting some sort of extra. The main thing isn't my freedom. The main thing is my brother's heart. And I, I don't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize his growth. So 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never eat meat again in order to keep my brother from falling. 
And so he says the exact same thing in 14.21 of Romans. The right thing to do is to avoid eating meat, drinking wine, or doing anything else that makes your brother stumble or become upset or weak. And so here's the principle. I'm free in Jesus, but I can't exercise my freedom at a brother's expense. And there are things that I don't do because of the harm it might do someone else. Now, I could ignore that well within my rights to do that. I could say, grow up. I'm free in Christ, man. I don't care what you think. You're not the judge of me. You know, let me just say this. Mature people don't use that phrase. You're not the judge of me. Who uses that phrase? Little kids who are mad at their brother, right? You're not the judge of me. And I could say all of that, and all of that is true, because I stand or fall before the Lord Jesus Christ, and He said, you are free. And I would be right. But let me say this, and I don't know how to say this. I've never been so wrong as when I was right. Now, I want you to chew on that a little bit, because sometimes we can be right and still be terribly wrong. Unity in the body and the health of my brother is more important than my personal liberty, so yield your rights Set aside your preferences. Seek the benefit of the other guy. Look at verse 2. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Uh, Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. And you see that word, please, please, please. You see it three different times. It's like that old Beatles song, please, please. You know? And the emphasis there is, who are you trying to please? And he focuses around on Jesus and he says, look, don't please yourself, please them. Jesus is the model. Jesus didn't seek to please himself. Look at verse 3, the end of it. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus didn't seek to please himself. He didn't seek to please himself when he became incarnated in the form of a man. The Philippians says, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself and became the form of a man went to the cross in obedience and died for the sins of man. You know, he wasn't pleasing himself on the cross. He was doing something essential for your salvation because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's the paycheck for sin. And one sin's as bad as all sin. And nothing I can ever do is going to compensate or make up for that in any way. I needed a Savior to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. He had to die in my place. And that's what Christ did. When he was on the cross, he wasn't pleasing himself. And let me just say this. That is the point of the gospel. And if you've never embraced that, this is your day. Man, receive his gift. Christ wasn't pleasing himself in that. Come to terms with who you are and who you are and what your need is and what Christ has done for you and yield your life to the authority of Jesus Christ through an act of faith. But it wasn't pleasing for him to do that. He did it out of love. And he's our model. That's our example. If Jesus did that for me, then I do that for you. How hard is that to understand? Sacrificing your rights is a Jesus thing. I don't exist to please myself. I seek to please you because Jesus sought to please me. Okay, now for the balance. I have to maintain unity by yielding my rights. But at the same time, I strive for unity by challenging you to keep growing. And that's the second part of it is. I limit my rights, but i got to help you grow. See, there's another side to this. We limit our freedom for the sake of an immature brother, but we also teach our brother, don't stay immature. You know, someone who stays in a perpetual state of immaturity is stunted. 
And there's something horribly wrong with that, right? And here it is. If we always do everything out of fear of offense, then we will forever live to the lowest common denominator. But that's the exact message of the woke culture. Nobody should ever be offended by anybody, right? Isn't that what we hear? And if you offend me, you know, it's like I told a blonde joke, okay? Well, listen, I was blonde most of my life. I'm now getting kind of gray and mostly gray, but used to be blonde, so I'm not appropriating your blonde culture. I can tell blonde jokes because I was one. But you know what? Let them tell blonde jokes even if they weren't one. Don't be so thin-skinned. Let them tell Baptist jokes. Let them, you know, Christians should be the hardest people in the world to offend because Jesus took the full offense of the cross upon himself and hung naked on a cross. I mean, what are, why are we so easily offended? And we shouldn't live a life like that. You know, they've got college campus spots now that are called safe zones where people can go and nobody can ever say anything offensive. I'm like, I would forever be banned from the safe zone because there's no way I could live in that place for five seconds without saying something, you know, come on. And what kind of, what are you teaching them? You think they got any safe zones out at the oil field? You think they got any safe zones on the pipeline or any safe zones in the law office or in the dental clinic or, you know, wherever you go? There's never, there's no such thing as that. So grow up. Stop being offended by everything. Stop letting every little thing hurt you, you know? Look back to Romans 15, verse 2. Look at the end of that. To his edification. We're building up. That word edify is from the building construction. It means to build the house. I'm building you up. Look, I'm going to limit my rights for you because I don't want to needlessly offend you. I'm do my best not to offend you. But at the same time, I'm not going to leave you in a baby, perpetual baby state. I'm going to, I'm going to call you to count, and I'm going to challenge you to grow up. Sometimes that might be offensive. I don't want to tear you down by recklessly exercising my liberty, but I want to build you up so that you're free too. Teach them to grow. I mean, if you're easily offended or influenced, then you have a spiritual responsibility to deal with those feelings. You cannot continue forever to expect the world to tread on eggshells around you. I mean, look at parenting. I said mature people set aside their preferences. It's the nature of immature people not to do that. But there comes a time in parenting when you stop setting aside your preferences because you demand that child grow up. It's one thing to get up in the middle of the night with a screaming newborn. But if you got a 12 or 13-year-old who's in there crying in the middle of the night, Mama, I need some milk. I need something to drink. I, I need some. It's like, are you serious? <laughs> Change me. Are you kidding me? That's dark and twisted. But we got a lot of Christians that are living in a perpetual sense of spiritual immaturity. They'll come to church, feed me, feed me, feed yourself. Read that Bible, it'll feed you. I'm here to challenge you, man. Grow up. Stedman said it like this He said, There are two thumbnail rules. The first rule is choose to please your neighbor rather than yourself. Do not insist on your own way of doing things. Be quick to give in. After all, this is what love does. Love does not insist on its own rights. Love will adjust and adapt to others. 
The second rule, however, says to be careful that your giving in does not allow your neighbor to be confirmed in his weakness, that you do not leave him without encouragement to grow or to rethink his position. If we do nothing but give way to people and give in to their weaknesses, the church eventually ends up living at the level of the weakest conscience in its midst. This presents a twisted and distorted view of Christian liberty, and the world gets false ideas about what is important and what Christianity is concerned about. So this helps to balance the situation. Please your neighbor, but for his own good, always leave something there to challenge his thinking or to make him reach out a bit and possibly change his viewpoint. The mature believer says, I'll sacrifice for you, but you need to grow up. So where do we go from here? Here's our insights for for life this week. You ready? The first is Jesus was patient with you. Isn't that what the scripture says, 2 Peter 3, 9? The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. Now here it is, and this this is the motivation that we need. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That's what Jesus was for you. He was patient with you, so you be patient with them. It's not too hard to understand, is it? Jesus was patient with me, so I need to be patient with them. Some people aren't where you are. Be patient with them. Second thing, Jesus was sacrificial for you. You need to understand that. You need to realize how much God loves you. You aren't going to impress Him with your performance. (laughs) <laughs> the Bible says your good works are like filthy rags. It's like chicken rags. You know, after you cut up a chicken on the counter and wipe it up, you got chicken rags. That's all your good works. All they do is smear the chicken stuff over your life. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross, and he's done everything necessary for you to have a relationship with God. You need to receive that. He was sacrificial for you. And if you have received that, And here's the second part. Jesus sacrificed for you. You sacrifice for them. Sometimes you got to give up your personal preference. You got to say, you know what? It's not about me. And in doing that, you demonstrate Jesus. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you're his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. You know what? When we start doing that, we're going to be amalgamated. We're going to stay stuck. And we are going to be the body of Christ with the authority and power of Christ to transform a community. Because I'll tell you something else. When the world looks for a place that's unified by unselfish believers who put the sincere interest of the other ahead of their own, you know what? They want to be a part of that. And God begins to use that to transform lives. We're seeing it all over the place. Uh, Jeff texted me last night at about 1130 11.30, you know it's Saturday night and I'm a pastor, right? 11.30, what did it say, 83 dudes? Eighty-three college athletes came to some form of repentance and four salvations. four salvations last night. And that's happening all the time. Why? Because 
People are willing to sacrifice because people are patient with people and they're being and living out the nature of Jesus. Let me tell you something. Jesus is attractive. Everybody wants to be around him. The problem is the church doesn't show the world who he is. We show them some caricature, some distortion of who he is. Be imitators of Christ as dear children. And in the same way he was patient with you, you be patient with them. In the same way he sacrificed for you, you sacrifice for them. And you're going to be amazed at what God's going to do in your life. So let's make a commitment. Y'all ready? Here's, I'm going to ask you to make two commitments. God, I commit myself to be patient with people. That's a tough one. And God, in the same way Jesus sacrificed for me, I'm going to start sacrificing for other people because it's not about me. Can we make that together? Let's bow and let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and the cross and for what he taught us through his life and what he taught us through his death and what he's given us through his resurrection. And we want to be like Jesus. We don't want to allow anything to happen in this church that's going to tear it apart because you have a plan, so we want to stick together. And so, Father, we yield our personal preferences to to the benefit of the other. And we purpose, Father, here's here's our commitment to you. Father, we are committed to be patient with people. Not going to be judgmental. Not going to talk bad about them. Not going to act like like they're somehow inferior to us. Like a, like a loving, mature parent with a struggling, learning child, we're going to be patient. And Father, we're going to sacrifice. Sometimes we're going to give up our preferences. We realize and we admit to you it's not about us. So Father, we commit to you the way Jesus sacrificed for us, we're going to sacrifice for others. And as we do that, Father, keep us together and let Jesus be seen. Let Jesus be manifest through us. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.